appreciate that, Shane. We'll be coming to you. <laughs> oh, <no>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just what you wanted to hear, right? Um, before we pray and uh, and read this passage on Romans seven, Miss Elizabeth, I think this came from you originally. This uh, this book, good old Derek Thomas, and uh, he has, I believe, it's eleven chapters on Romans eight. Please do not leave the Romans room without a Romans eight book. Lord willing, in two weeks um, from right now. Uh, that's 336 hours and we're counting those down. Um, we will finally be in Romans 8 and we'll be there, Lord willing, for 11 weeks. And uh, cannot wait. He takes these uh, in little chunks. They're short little chapters, but boy, they're good. I think they're good. Um, and and just, um, he is really solid. Um and so we would love for you to take that book and kind of follow along with that. Now, we'll be using that kind of as our outline, at least for those verses that we're covering each week. Sometimes it's one or two, uh, sometimes it's three or four, but it, um, that is. And uh, even if you wanted to invite somebody to come, if, I mean, Romans 8 kind of stands on its own, even if they did not, were not able to come. Um, all the way for the first seven months uh, Romans they could come for those 11 weeks and and uh, I think Lord willing it would hit the spot so um, today uh, so good to have Grant back Grant thank you for coming back and uh, Josh could you give a quick Johnny Krause update just because this is such a great story yeah so my youngest brother is Johnny he's 23 years old um, I guess I can just say, I really think a couple of years ago, he started going to a great church in Delonga called Christ Family Church. His first year in college, I think, was drifting a little bit, but the Lord did a really great and powerful work in his life, I think, going to that church and just hearing the faithful teaching of God's Word. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, very similar to our church here at North Ave, but um, I guess I'm just thinking about his life and... Um, the transformation over the last few years with him and how he I, I told this story and I'll just tell it now uh, Johnny called me one day and there was a, a while he would call me and he either needed something or he'd ask for advice about something and that was about it so he calls me one day he's in college and he's um, I think overslept his alarm eight times and <laughs> failed his failed a class and um, so he's calling me to figure out what to do with that. And I think this is before he became a believer. Um, so over the last few years, he's become very disciplined. And even the last few weeks, we've been living together out at mom and dad's. And he gets up really early, 7 a.m., reading his Bible every day and making coffee for all of us and sharing with us what he's learning in the words. So it's been re remarkable to see just in a few years the total transformation um, spiritually, but just in his life and, and how the Lord's worked. That's neat. And tell us about Lynn's wife. Yeah, so they met over at Watkinsville Church, and I think she's helped him to mature in many ways. And she's just, we really like Lindsay. She's super phenomenal. Yep. And <clears throat> been married now for 12 hours. Yep. <laughs> or not even. Yep. So that's exactly, that's exciting. Well, good. Good deal. Well, um, Grant, would you read? Uh, maybe go back and start with 11. 
11 to uh, 25 here, and we are in, and that's not shocking, a place that uh, commentators say one of the hardest things to understand in the book of Romans. And so although it seems like that, we've heard that uh, quite a few times, um, this one is uh, majorly disputed. And there is, when we read it, I think you'll see why at least I still feel um, torn in many ways by it, and it seems like the commentators are as well. So uh, this is a really a, a neat um, uh, look at the battle with sin, um, certainly that we had before we were believers, and now we have still as believers. Uh, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Can you pray for us today? Sure. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, day that we can gather together uh, safely and publicly with our fellow local body. Father, thank you for, for providing um, each of these members that are here today, Father. Um, thank you for this discussion of Romans. It's certainly humbling to come to this passage and to see um, people on both sides having good reason to hold the position they do. So, Father, I pray that we would be humble but not timid and that this discussion would be beneficial and that your spirit uh, would enliven us to rightly understand this text. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, going back just a, a little bit, and um, two weeks ago, um, Carter and, and Papa and Josh did such a great job on, um, on 1 to 13. Schreiner had a neat quote you said, Josh, on this covenant. You remember, you may remember, that of all the Ten Commandments, uh, he uses coveting, the Tenth Commandment, one where it's kind of a, a hard issue, huh? That um, as the, the commandment that he continues to break, um, and, and, and I think today we'll see, possibly even as a believer. Could you... Read that and, think, and tell yeah, us about that a little bit. I sure can. It's interesting, like you said, Jerry, he chooses to use that one commandment, coveting, and he spends a lot of time talking about it in those verses 7 to uh, 
12, and I thought this quote by Tom Schreiner helps to bring that out. Why would he use coveting? Why does he choose to talk about that at length um, and really focus on that? And here's what Tom Schreiner says. Coveting is significant because it is the only commandment that specifically refers to the desires of the heart rather than outward actions. The warning addresses these internal desires, thus showing how transgression doesn't take place merely when outward laws are disobeyed. It is present when our desires are contrary to God's will. Paul identifies covetousness as idolatry. Those whose lives are filled with coveting are guilty of the fundamental sin by desiring what is forbidden. They show that they uh, reassure and delight in someone more than the one true God. He is not their greatest treasure or pleasure. It's a fundamental and root sin. Yeah. So when you're looking at... Oh, and I just stole your... Uh, Thirteen. When you go back to thirteen, when you look at that, we have got to remember that sin, and I, and somehow I think this sneaks in. At least I'm afraid it does in my own life. Sometimes, sin can almost appear sometimes because it's so deceitful to be kind of a helpful acquaintance rather than just a bitter enemy. Sometimes sin's almost like this. Ah, gossip, it's kind of a, something we do at lunch a little bit. Or what, you know, and, uh, and I think Scott's going through, isn't it with you guys, Respectable Sins. Isn't that your next book? That's right. Oh, wow. And that's such a good book, Jerry Bridges, to say, boy, these sins that seem a bit respectable are absolutely anything but that. They are waging war. They are coming with both barrels blazing all the time after us. And they're never to be a friend. Never, they are never on our side 100% of the time since destructive. And man, we need to see it like that. And I think 713 really has grabbed me by the neck with did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, what a ghastly thought, right? It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Sin might be shown to be sin. Let's never call sin anything but what it is. It's devastating. And let's not ever play around with it. Josh, in the counseling world, sin's called all other kinds of crazy stuff. It can right? be, yeah. Yeah, it, it can it, be. We can find... Not in the good counseling world, it shouldn't be. But I'm talking about in... Right, right, right. No, I, it's... Yeah, I've, I've mentioned it before, but, you know... The way we diagnose a problem is will lead us to the solutions that we seek, especially with counseling things. And it can be convenient to label something uh, that the Bible might call sin as something else. And we want to be really cautious and hesitant to do that. Or we don't want to do that at all. We want to label things as they are biblically. And of course, I think it's very unloving and it doesn't bring God glory if we call something something else that the Bible would define as sin. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Grant, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I just think it's important for like what you're saying, Josh, to be able to understand how bad sin is, not to coddle it or change its definition or call it a different term that's more palatable to the current generation or whatever. I think of um, the story of this, this chemist um, I don't remember her name, but she was famous for studying mercury compounds. And 
Uh, she was doing some stuff with, I think, either diethyl or dimethylmercury, a really toxic compound one day, and it was before they really knew the dangers of mercury. She was actually one of the people that helped figure it out, but she got some on her glove and didn't think it was that big of a deal, so finished doing whatever she was doing, not very long, maybe 20, 30 more seconds, doing what she was doing before she took the glove off, but that was enough time for that compound to absorb through the glove and into her skin, and then a year later she died a pretty horrific death from that uh, mercury poisoning, a uh, specific type of mercury poisoning. So to me that's just an example of sin. If you coddle it, it may not seem like a big deal for the, these respectable sins or, or whatever you want to describe them as. Um, they may not seem like a big deal at the time, but they, they bear fruit and death later, uh, far more deadly than we can probably understand. Uh, this side of heaven, how bad they are and what they're reaping in us if we give them a place uh, longer than we should. Huh. Wow, that's, that is a, that's a great illustration and, uh, and one that good to remember. You might remember 623, the wages of sin is death. Right, that's just, uh, and, and boy, you see it in 713. Uh, um, what did that, which is good, remember he's talking about the law here, uh, the law is good and it brings death to me? No, 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 no. That's not what brings death. Yeah, Kaylin. What are some examples of the way in which people are relabeling sin? Oh, what yeah. Josh Krauts, this is where we're glad you're on the panel. <laughs> I guess I'm, I can think of two examples. Maybe um, it can be easy to say what the Bible would call anger, we might say, oh, I'm just I'm just a little frustrated when, I mean, that would be just a simple example. But here's a, a, a more serious example. In the education world, there are students and many people in here in the education world would attest to this, but there are diagnoses today, something called ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, that students are being diagnosed with and giving this label for things that would be biblically defined as sin and rebellion and um, those types of things. So <clears throat> that would Dance be disorder. Yeah, I think that's a big one. You know, in a psychological, psychobabble type world, there would be this. Yeah, let's, let's label something. And it's almost like it's something that came upon me. That's the way I see that, that I think we're messed up on this. Where Jesus is very clear that sin comes from within. This is not something that came upon me. These, this is not the measles. This is something that is born in me that from the word go, I was conceived with this issue. Nine months before I came out of the womb, I had this battle going in me. And, and all of us did. And, the, and then to say, okay, so this is something that's lodged in there from the beginning. And boy, we're going to see it again. We, and Paul brings it up in Romans. Uh, I, I think, Thomas, you would have uh, this probably still in your mind from your Roman study too. But you know, in Romans 3... Just as a reminder, and it's too good to, to not be reminded, but go back to this devastating passage in Romans 3 for a second. Um, great, you read 10 through 12. I mean, it's just we've got to think about it like this. 10 through 12 of chapter 3. Yes, sir. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Yeah, and I think the world rebels against that, and sometimes in our own hearts we almost want to rebel against that. To say, ah, now there's a little bit of good in me, and there just isn't outside of Christ. And that's what we have to think when you think a uh, little preview of what's coming up, I guess, a month. Look at 7 and 8 in chapter 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, four things. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Worse yet, right? It doesn't submit to God's law. It can submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, that's about the end of the discussion right there, then, where we start. If we can't please God, and that's what we're created to do, right? We're created to glorify Him, and if that's impossible to do without Christ, then, oh boy, do we have a problem. And, and it's not a small problem, and it's not something we should call a disorder, or a weakness, or a, I don't know, an issue. This is sin is sin. And that is what, and I mean, this is a crazy example. I'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I talk to my phone a lot, and it's supposed to then say the words that I'm saying, right? It's supposed to dictate that. Well, sometimes I just talk to it because I'm not happy with it, maybe, but uh, this is when I'm talking to it. It cannot spell sin. It says, and maybe I'm not saying it clear enough. It says, send it says a bunch of other things, but it will never just spell. And I think, oh, that thing kind of reminds me of me a little bit. Where I cannot just say I'm the problem. I will blame my issues, which I'll call them, on whatever else I can think of. Uh, a horrible example of it, but I'm too far deep into it not to give it now. It's like, yeah, 14 years ago, maybe... I uh, did the wrong thing in teaching to a student, graded something really wrong. No way, 100% my fault. And, uh, and I got called on it um, by the student and the principal, the headmaster, and, and I was just wrong. And I'll tell you, I had a five-day, it was a thir uh, Thursday or a Friday, and I remember that I wanted to blame that on somebody else, probably still do, but... I wanted to blame that on somebody else for five days. Before Wednesday, finally, the Lord convinced my heart to say, it is not your wife, the student, your busyness. It's nothing else. It's you. You're the problem. And, and man, I had a hard time saying that. Who was the guy on TV that couldn't say he was wrong? This is Miss Elizabeth. We're going back. Fonzie? No, who who couldn't say? Uh, uh, maybe there was a like a show, a TV show, where the man could not just, it couldn't come out. He would, It was supposed to be funny, but it was pretty real. You know, the character on TV couldn't, before your time, Grant? I think so. <laughs> so but somebody just could not admit that, and I think that that's, so all of this reminds me of that, that we, the believer is so free to admit that they're wrong, aren't they? Because our identity is in how, in how good we are. Our identity is in Christ. So let's be very open and honest and free to just say, whoa, I'm sorry. I blew it. I did the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I think the wrong thing. I need to go to the Lord 
and confess those things when I did it, rather than hide it, rather to uh, blame shift, all of those things. Man, and where did blame shifting start, right? Right from the garden. Do you remember that? The very minute that they sinned, Adam's blaming it on Eve and on God, you know, just brazen. The woman you put here with me, he wasn't quick to say, raise his hand and say he was sorry. It, it And the woman blamed it on the snake. Nobody says it's my fault. And, I, and if you're like me, that's still a temptation. So, all right, going now to verse 14. And this is where we're starting. Today, especially what we want to do is kind of cover, there's a number of different views on the way very godly commentators see this. But who is the I is the question um, in Romans 7, 14 through 25. I is mentioned countless times in here. Right? I can remember. I want to just read these kind of one by one and, and and just talk about how, wow, this sounds like a believer. Well, this sounds like an unbeliever. And then there's a couple of views in between. All right? But look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, all of a sudden, that doesn't sound like chapter 6, right? I'm, if he's a believer, I'm saying. That almost sounds like he's an unbeliever. If you're talking 14, right? Sold under sin? That sounds too strong. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But wait a second here. If he's an unbeliever, uh, they don't want to do what's good. So now all of a sudden, if he wants to do what's good, he sounds like a believer. What do I do? This very thing I hate? Okay, so he's saying he's hating his sin. Well, that's not the unbeliever. The unbeliever's fine with their sin, right? Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. Hold it. The unbeliever doesn't ever agree with the law. The, old, the unbeliever doesn't care about the law. I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Um, there he seems to make this differentiation, right? That, wait a second here. I am truly changed in Christ, but I still have these members that, boy, are out to get me. We'll talk about that in a second. For I know, verse 18, now this you say, wait a second. If he's truly a believer, he surely can't say this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. You raise the red flag and just say, wait a second, Christ dwells in me. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Surely he can't be saying that. But then he gives this little qualifier. But not, um, for I, uh, that is in my flesh. And then you say, oh, okay, well now he's maybe differentiating again. He's saying my flesh is on this side. And truly, the Lord is in me here. So then, okay, well, maybe he is a believer. For I have the desire to do what's right. Now, that sounds like a believer. The unbeliever doesn't have a desire to do what's right. But not the ability to carry it out. Uh-oh, that sounds like an unbeliever. Does the ability have the, the ability to carry out sin? The believer? Yeah, they do. Right? The Holy Spirit gives them that ability. 
Do you see what I'm? Do you see what we got going here? We've got some evidence. It looks like on both sides, and in chapter six, you might remember he was so strong. He was so strong on how we're no longer a slave to sin. Oh, it was so convincing. And you leave chapter six, and you say, "Whoa, good deal. I'll never sin again." It's never going to happen, right? And then you walk outside and complain about the hot. And you're like, uh-oh. You know? It, it, it's, this is, that's why we have Grant on the panel, so that we understand what what's going on here. 19, for I do not do the good I want. Okay? Uh, he's got an admission there. I think we would all admit that. If he says, I want to do good, that sounds like a believer. But the evil I do not want, sounds like a believer, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. Okay, now I don't think he's saying there that he's not taking responsibility for his sin. But he's again differentiating. It's that sin that dwells within me. It's still that lingering sin. What would uh, Owen call it? The indwelling sin. Right? That, that still, ah, still gets us. 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. That doesn't sound like the unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't delight in the law of God, right? In my inner being. But I see... In my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Now, even if you are convinced that this is a believer, that Paul is speaking as at post-conversion here, that sounds, you wouldn't expect, I wouldn't have expected Paul to say that. Captive? to the law of sin? What did he just convince us of in chapter 6? That we were no longer slaves of sin. That we were slaves to Christ. And so it's this language that goes back and forth here that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we'll get to that uh, a lot next week. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so now he gets to the solution. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. And you're like, oh, good. Now he's, you know, done with this. He's going to end on a really a high note. Not so fast, my friend. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. It's like, oh, you know, the battle, the battle that you can see here. And you'd say, if he's writing as an unbeliever, there seems like the real angst here, isn't there? That, that, and I don't think as, as an unbeliever. So Grant, help us. Okay. With this. What, give me some arguments here as to who would say that he's, that he's possibly really speaking of a pre-converted Paul. And why would he possibly be saying that? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, I think Augustine changed his mind on this one. I know Schreiner did. In 2016, he wrote an article uh, defending the non-regenerate view, and then he published his second copy of, I guess, his commentary 
uh, defending the regenerate view in 2018, I believe. So it, it's not something that I take lightly, but I, I think there are good people on both sides of this, and even Lloyd-Jones seems to have sort of this third in-between the two view where it's neither unregenerate or regenerate, but sort of a person under conviction or something like that? Yeah, can, you know what? In fact, um, if you're all right, Josh, would you read this? This is a whole third view, you know, not to make this even more confusing, but you and Ari, because he did a really good job of just summing up Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which we love. We've listened to him, and he's just so, and he came up completely different than anybody else on this and was very dogmatic that this is the way to go. Yeah, here. Yeah. A third view has been advanced by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Following it would seem a suggestion made a century ago, though briefly, by Frederick Godet. This approach takes everything that has been said thus far with full seriousness, drawing the apparently paradoxical conclusion that what Paul says here can be said of neither the unregenerate nor the regenerate man. The unsaved person cannot speak of the law as Paul does. He does not understand its good and spiritual character. He is in rebellion against it. On the other hand, the saved person cannot speak in such a defeated manner. He cannot cry out for deliverance because he knows he's already been delivered from the power of sin through the work of Christ. The man of Romans 7 is therefore one who does not yet know who can deliver him. Yeah, so he kind of argues, and I know this has got to be confusing, it was to me and I listened to him a lot, that this is the man that is on his way to being saved, and he is deeply convicted, but he's not, and what Jones used the word fully regenerate. Yeah, it's say, man, I thought that you were either fully regenerate or you weren't. Right? You're either alive or you're dead in your transgressions and your sins. So these are so all of this to say these are solid guys that aren't completely settled, which should give us some humility. Isn't that what you're saying, Grant? Yeah, that's there right. There should be some Definitely. real humility how we go about this. Definitely humility, but I still think you know it's vital for us to give our best effort to come to a conviction of what the Scripture is actually saying. And I, and I do think that can... It may take some time, but I think that we can we can do that. But do you want me to go through? I have seven reasons or Let's arguments for the, the unregenerate view that are actually, I think when I first approached this passage, I sort of had an assumption of just people that I've listened to. So I had just this assumption of the regenerate view. And then I saw the other side, the, the arguments, and they're actually very good. So you have to deal with them as they come, honestly, and see which one um, convinces you and what you think the text is actually saying and not just an assumption. But... Starting, I have seven seven reasons here. Starting with number one would be uh, an argument from the layout of the text. So there seems to be a key uh, verses in verse five and six that for while we were living in the flesh, I think that's definitely non-believer, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit not the old way of the written code. So you seem to have these two um, ways of thinking, life under the law of flesh and then life under the spirit. And that, in this argument, could be the, the next layout of the rest of chapter 7 and then in chapter 8 would be explaining those two. So you'd have the life under the law of flesh in verse 5 would be elaborated in verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7. 
Um, and then in verse 6, you have the life in the Spirit, which could be elaborated in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So you have this transition between the two that would explain these two categories of living in the flesh or living by the Spirit. Um, so that's, that's a pretty good one. Uh, number two, there's this shift to the present tense that is interesting in, I guess, 14 through 25. Um, where it's no longer past tense. I don't know, we need Tyler here for all the aortist stuff, but uh, it's present tense. Um, I don't think there's a good answer on this side for that one, but they say the present tense doesn't necessarily indicate present time. The present tense shows a shift from the narrative of Paul's life to the condition of the person under the law. That one I don't think is quite as convincing, but number three, uh, the reason three, the contrast between seven and eight are so high that it is hard to say that they are describing the same person. The now um, in chapter eight seems to show a shift from the condemnation that existed for the person in seven um, to no condemnation now in chapter eight. The reason four would be nowhere uh, in verses 14 through 25 does it mention the Holy Spirit, whereas in chapter eight it mentions him 19 times. And we see this inability to keep God's law that seems to show a dramatic lack of the Spirit's power, while the person in chapter 8 is able to keep God's law by the Spirit. Reason 5 would be, the delight in God's law could describe any pious Jew or moral person, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's, um, this section is not describing all unregenerate people, it's, it's describing an unregenerate Jew or moral person, such as Paul before Christ, um, such Jews have a genuine delight in God's law, even though they cannot keep it. Uh, Paul refers to this in chapter 9, verses 31 through 32, and in chapters 10, verse 2, with zeal for God's law. Um, this, and then verse or reason 6, Paul saying under sin usually denotes non-believer. That's not typical language for someone of a believer, as we saw from chapter 6. And then the final argument would be number seven, the bleakness and defeat of the text is hard to explain. The depth of defeat seems to contradict what we learned in Romans 6. So mm -hmm. those were what I think are the best arguments for the unregenerate view that we have to deal with. And I think, you know, as we continue, we'll show, I still think the regenerate view has the better, better look for what this text is actually saying. Yeah, Josh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, those reasons are really good. I just think about what we've covered in chapter 6, spent four weeks there. Just think through some of these verses, and you'll start to feel the tension. Uh, verse 2, chapter 6, How can we who've died to sin still live in it? Verse 6, Our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing. Verse 7, One who has died has been set free. Verse 18, we've now become slaves of righteousness. And then, you know, fast forward through chapter 7, look at chapter 8. Uh, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. And um, the contrast between life and the spirit in chapter 8 versus the Holy Spirit's lacking completely in 14 to 25. I mean, these are some weighty arguments, I think, to, to wade through that would lend themselves to the... Pre this is describing a pre... Christian experience for for Paul. So I do, I do think we sort of tread carefully, but as you mentioned, I, for me this week trying to wrestle through how you know, how do these all come together is is I think fruitful for us as we're trying to know and understand God's word and sometimes it's a little more challenging uh, than others. I think it was uh, Lloyd-Jones 
uh, this is one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think it's, it, is, it is difficult and um, certainly nothing to break fellowship on, even if we come out on different sides. But yeah, boy, that is what you <laughs> heard across the board by all the commentators. You know, just to say, well, there are really, really good brothers and sisters that disagree with whichever way, way we would come out. Some of you probably read Stott. He had a whole different one. He was like, man, this is talking about the, the uh, um, Old Testament. Wait, is that Thomas or that didn't convince you? Yeah, I read that, and I was like, I don't know where he's going with it. I know, man. It really, I was a little less convinced about this than most arguments do, but that the un- and he was saying the Old Testament believer didn't have the Spirit. So he was, I, 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 you know, he, he didn't have the Holy Spirit to help him. And then when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, within the Romans 8 believer is a whole different bird, according to Stott. Now he's got the Holy Spirit to help him. And so, an interesting argument again. I don't know, completely um, compelling. Grant. Take us through the arguments that uh, that Paul is really now um, saying, this is me as a mature believer still battling with sin. Right. This is okay. Paul as a true believer still battling with sin. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's, that's what you're saying, Paul as a mature believer, not as an immature believer or some sort of carnal Christian. I think it's describing a mature believer who has a clear eye on the sinfulness of their sin still in their flesh. Yeah, but, let me throw in, you did say carnal believer. That is a, a uh, I, boy, I think a weak argument. I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I think that that is a growing argument where a lot of people would like to kind of just say, well, this is just a carnal Christian, they're really a Christian, but they're just really not acting like it. Well, that there is way too much in Scripture that says that true believers are definitely changed. Yeah. This isn't just a, tr- a believer that's just still acting like an unbeliever. That can't be. I don't right. think. Yeah. So one of the biggest ones for me when I was reading this is <laughs> this in verse 14, but I am of the flesh. And when you hear that description, it's like, how do you get around that for that being a regenerate person? That doesn't seem like there is any answer to that, but I, I do think there is one. Um, Paul's very specific in whether he says of the flesh or in the flesh or living according to the flesh. But the the, tra- the difference in in the flesh, I think he says in uh, yeah verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. I think that's talking about non-believer. And then in chapter 8, uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, I think that's describing a non-believer. Um, but here he says, I am of the flesh, which sounds very similar, um, but it would be describing fleshly of the body as earthly, perishable material. And he uses it again. I don't know that, you know, test this and see what you think, but he uses that same phrase three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, describing what I believe are Christians. I'm not trying to get into 1 Corinthians and describe this uh, all the nuance of this, I don't know that I can do that, but I'm just trying to show that this phrase could be used of of someone else. Uh, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh. You are 
are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So I think so he's talking about real believers. It there. seems to be he's talking yeah, to in brothers Christ. in Christ who are uh, of the flesh, acting in a fleshly way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the the sins that he's talking about there are jealousy and strife. They're they're not this overt uh, sexual immorality or uh, adultery or, or murder. It's it's sort of like the coveting example again. The sins sins of the heart and yeah. action. But I think that can be a good indicator that he's. Um, sort of nuancing this of the flesh from in the flesh, describing uh, non-believer. Um, reason two would be Paul seems to differentiate, and you said this already, differentiate uh, the eyes starting in around verse 17. The other eye seems to uh, transcend the flesh, and the flesh doesn't seem to exhaust the nature of that person. So we have starting in verse 16, now I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he continues with this differentiation between this like inner being of this inner eye that delights in the law of God, uh, that wants to do right uh, from the part of him that is in his members or in in the flesh doing the sinning. He seems to show this differentiation, which I don't think by itself is a is the grounds of the regenerate view, but I do think it's it's pushing the scale in that direction. That there seems to be some argument that he's developing that's um, a little more nuanced. And then the third reason would be um, that this eye also delights in the law of God in his inner being. And so the unregenerate side would say that would be a moral person, a, a Pharisee type, religious person who uh, prized God's law. But I just don't think that's very convincing to me that someone who delights in the law of God and their inner being, that to me sounds like David or someone like that who is truly delighting in the law of the God. They're not trying to gain righteousness by law keeping. Uh, they don't have a self-righteousness. Um, and I, I don't want to just characterize or make a caricature of all Pharisees, but um, it just doesn't seem like prizing God's law uh Sort of in a prideful way that others don't have it or they're they're not keeping it as well is the same as someone who is delighting in the law of god and their inner being uh, i do think the shift to the present tense is impactful um in, in verses 14 through uh 25 he shifts the to the present tense josh did you have anything you want to say about that like yeah and I would like to ask you, Jerry, what sort of tilted the scales for you? What were the weighty arguments? But here's one, here's one thing that I do find convincing. When we read that, um, the, the grammar, the way it reads as the present tense shift, it is a natural reading of the text. And it's, I think Paul is using it that way because that's how he wants to be understood. This is a present tense experience. I don't know you mentioned it can denote a former time, but I think Paul's using the consistent present tense of I uh, to talk about his current experience. And it, it, to me, shows the experience of a mature believer who's wrestling deeply and deeply aware of the reality and influence and presence of sin still in his life, not ceding to it, not saying he's lessening in the fight, but acknowledging its presence and, and going to war with it with the power of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. I when. To me, the most natural way to read the passage seems to say that this is Paul as a mature believer. When I just read it, now that's 
1824. Whew. I, you know, I don't know that I have. If that's the case, then those are surprising um, statements to me. They're certainly right, though. God has inspired them. That is what is supposed to be in here. And, uh, and so this is exactly right. Tyler was interesting. I wondered it when you asked that question. I was like, well, Mark and Tyler were the maybe. But uh, Tyler said just in the, the way this is written, if he was going just by the exegesis, he just says there's, he cannot find a way to uh, say that this is written as anything but Paul as a mature believer. And uh, so, um, talking a lot to both Mark and and Tyler about this, uh, they just were very convinced of the, the arguments for the believer on on this. And uh, so, it's been really enjoyable, to, though, to read a lot of different people and to try to um, to look at the text and understand the text the best it is. Great. What else? Yeah. So I have the last last three would be. Um, there seems to be a differentiating between the focus of his mind and what's happening in his members. And to me, this seems like, well, let me just read here. Uh, he wants to do what is right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind. Um, then down here at the very end, he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And to me, that seems like a mindset on things of the spirit that we describe in chapter 8. His mind delights in the law of God. He wants to do what's right. Um, he serves the law of God with his mind. That to me seems like um, I can't find it. Oh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, he never describes his mind as set on the flesh in 7. But those who are, uh, you are, who are however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you um, well, I'm not finding it right now, but the, the mind that is set on spiritual things seems to be what is being described right there. The last two would be, um, I think verse 24 more readily lends itself to being understood as a future deliverance and redemption of the body than it does as salvation. Uh, the climax of this passage would have to be for the unregenerate view that he is describing salvation here and uh, verse 24 and 25, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that is describing, um, he's differentiating this new man, in, inner man is new, but this body is still corrupt. And so there needs to be this future redemption. Who's going to save this body? Who's going to transform me? That's coming in the future. The tense of that is in the future. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's describing a body of death. The focus is on the body. And this... Uh, is seen in verse 10 of, of Romans 8, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then again in, in verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. So we see someone who has the first fruits of the spirit, this eternal, uh, in, eternal seed, but their body is still dead um, because of sin. And then the last one is verse 25 is after the climax of the passage and reiterates the struggle that was explained in verses 14 through 23. And it doesn't seem to me that he can be going through this passage for an unregenerate view and then climaxing with his salvation and then reiterating the same struggle 
right after yeah, that. Yeah, that last phrase. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, hard to get past that last very phrase convincing. for that view. Yeah. Hey, one more thing. And Josh, before, can you close this with reading uh, the end of uh, 762 with Boyce? Uh, yep. on 762 there because he kind of gives a final uh, uh, summary that I thought was pretty good. This is not the only Paul here in Romans 7. One more quick thing on this. Uh, Galatians 5, listen to this language. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. So that, you know, God inspired that through Paul as well. And then Peter, 1 Peter 1, 2, I hadn't remembered this, verse 11. Listen to the same sort of language here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. So the passions of the flesh wage against our soul. Not here just in Romans 7, but also Galatians 5 and 1 Peter 2, 11. Uh, kind of a summary here of an of a argument. And we'll go verse by verse through this next week. Yeah, so Boyce says, In other words, to say I've passed out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 is not the mark of a mature Christian, but of an immature one. A mature Christian knows that he is always in Romans 7 apart from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he knows that dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something that is attained once for all but is the result of a daily struggle and a constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? It is an awareness of how good we are be is it an awareness of how good we are becoming or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are so we will constantly turn to and depend upon Jesus Christ. If we're maturing Christ, we know it is the latter. Yeah. No, it's, that's a good good way to end it. Josh, can you pray for us? Sure. Father, thank you for giving us some time to begin looking at this complex passage. Lord, I pray that as we wrestle through it, that we would uh, come to a level of understanding and that our, our minds would be illuminated by the Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would guide our study and our prep. And Lord, help us to press on to maturity. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect and image our Savior Jesus and uh, turn to you often in repentance where we uh, do not conform to your law. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak through uh, the teaching of your word today in the main service. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.